Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Before we dive into today's guest, I just wanted to let you know, if you love this show and want to make sure we succeed, here are a few ways you can support us. Shop through the links in the show notes. Use the Stacks codes when you shop with our partners. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Follow us on social media, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and become a patron. Those are all super easy ways you can help out. You can find links to everything in the show notes. Today, I am joined by author and the co-founder of The Blue Stoop in Philadelphia, Emma Copley Eisenberg. Emma's debut book is called The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia. As you'll hear today, this book is many things, including true crime, investigative journalism, and memoir. You'll also get to know Emma's reading tastes and better understand her philosophy of both and. Emma will be back on June 24th to discuss the Stacks Book Club pick, Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. And a small reminder, everything we discuss on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. All right, let's talk with Emma. All right, you guys, I'm so excited. I'm sitting here today with Emma Copley Eisenberg. Emma is a writer. She's an author and her most recent, well, actually not most recent. Well, yes, most recent, but also first ever (laughs) book is called The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia. Emma, welcome to the stacks. Thank you so much. And great job pronouncing Appalachia. Thank you. There's a lot of, thank you. There's a lot of confusing uh, and disagreeing interpretations of the pronunciation, but the one that I have heard and that people in West Virginia will like correct you is Appalachia. Well, I listened to your audiobook, so I uh, noticed perfect. that you said it that way. So I was like, <laughs> okay, this feels like she wouldn't mess this up. I try. Um, before we start talking about your book, let's just talk about you for a little bit, oh, which okay. I know authors hate, but yeah. who cares? Whatever. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you are now, how you got there. Just give us like a little bit of maybe like how books became part of your life. Just mm-hmm. a little intro. Oh, absolutely. Well, I am like a natural born New York City, downtown New York City girl. Um, Always wanted to be a writer. My mom was a children's librarian, which makes a lot of sense. Okay. And my dad was uh, always wanted to be a writer. He like wrote for the Michigan University newspaper, but he was like first generation immigrant, had to like make money. From where? Russia. Okay. So uh, that he was like, I will do the responsible thing, but like (laughs) my children will be artists. So my sister and I have chosen, quote, dead end careers, according to my mom. (laughs) What is your sister? Um, She's a PhD. She's got a PhD in English, but also detective fiction. So we have a crime element in our family. That's kind of cool. I know. We watch too much Law and Order as children, Perfect. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I live in Philadelphia now, um, which is wonderful. It's like much more affordable. I can have a backyard. My cat Gabriel is happy. Um, and I'm like there for the long haul. I also run a small literary nonprofit called Blue Stoop. And we have a um, fun event series. We do classes. It's sort of modeled on like the loft in Minneapolis or um, Grub Street in Boston, that kind of vibe. I was going to ask you about yeah. Blue Stoop, but you already did it. So you guys oh, bring yeah. in authors. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do writing workshops and stuff there too? We do. The idea is like Philly has a really rich, longstanding poetry community, um, but the prose community has always been a little bit like fractured or like each um, neighborhood has like a reading series, but like people don't know each other or definitely I went to school outside of Philly and um, for college and then moved into the city and I was like, I am... Which a 22 year old and like trying to, uh, 
well, actually, I guess I was a builder by then because I went to West Virginia directly after school. But I tried to plug into the literary community after that when I was like 24. And there just like wasn't it, – it was difficult to find other writers and mm. to get better in your craft. Right. I really wanted to meet writers who were further down the road than me and that was tricky. So my – sort of partly selfish idea too was like to make a space where people who are sort of between being an undergrad but being a professional writer could get better, um, find community, go to events that were rigorous and inspiring and all the right. things. So yeah. How long ago did you guys start or did you started it with mm-hmm. one other person? Yes, with my friend Josh, who's wonderful. Uh we were booksellers together oh. at um People's Books and Culture Philadelphia, who used to be called Penn Book Center, but they were um going to close and then the community like rallied around and they were bought and changed the name. And oh, it's, wow. yeah, it's a really cool bookstore. Um, you should come in Fairburn, Philadelphia, but, uh, yes, we started in May of 2018. So okay. two years coming up, but still pretty young. And this podcast started in April, 2018. Oh. So we're like the same age. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it seems like in the last few months, the end of last year, beginning of this year, there's been a lot, you're the third Philadelphia book yes. that I've been right? kind of flirting with. So your book <laughs> and then Such a Fun Age uh-huh. and then Long, Long Bright, Bright River. River. Is yes. that just like the biggest coincidence or we're are they a renaissance? Yeah. I, think. I feel um, like Blue Stoop is leading the way. I hope so. Or we're like uh, carrying the train after the bride or something, you know, like we're there <laughs> when it's already happening. Um, yeah, there was just a cool article written for Philadelphia Magazine by this young journalist, uh, Claire Sasko. And she was basically asking the question of like, yeah, like why are there... Uh, more and more authors. And also there's um, a new bookstore called Harriet's Bookstore that's um, run by a woman of color and it's all four authors of color essentially. Awesome. And yeah, it's really cool. Also should check that out. And we also have Uncle Bobby's, um, just run by Mark Lamont Hill in uh, oh, Germantown. Yeah. Slash oh, he's a, I didn't realize he was Philadelphian. Yeah. He's a professor at Temple. Oh, okay. So he has, has been doing super cool things. And yeah, I just feel like as Philadelphia, um, you know, becomes uh, a little bit more like on the map literary wise and it's affordable and there's lots of good people there. Right. We're like, you know, just bringing, bringing the heat. Uh, Kylie's book is amazing. So Such good. a fun age. Um, Liz's book is amazing. Long Great River. It's about the opioid epidemic in Philadelphia, but mm-hmm. like with a lot of, um, she's lived and worked, or sorry, she's worked with uh, and volunteered for organizations around um, opioid treatment for a long time. So I think it's a really like interesting lens into Kensington, Philadelphia. Yeah. I haven't read that one yet, but I, I have it and I want to. Yeah. The audiobook's good too. Oh, it is? Okay. Great to know. Um, okay. Let's talk about your book mm. since, you know, you wrote a book and Indeed. we should talk about it. Yes. This is a book podcast, allegedly. So you, after college, go to West Virginia. Right. You work with like it's like for young girls to just like be alive and have space to be safe and alive and it's through mm-hmm. the core right yeah it's a little bit tricky because um it's a nonprofit that is independent founded by um cool uh local west virginia uh women but then um i got connected to it through my college through Haverford College. And then um, it was in that moment of time, like right in 2009, like during the recession, a lot of the um, jobs that were available at the mm. time were AmeriCorps jobs or, or um, Teach for America jobs, whatever. And so even though the organization you know hires and has its own staff, they also have a long history of FISTA positions. So I basically was hired by them and then they were like, you have to become a member of AmeriCorps, which... Um, is complicated in the region because there's been about 250 AmeriCorps Vistas have come through this county since um, the start of the program. And it's always been um, a war on poverty sort of holdover program. So even though it wasn't my original intention to be an AmeriCorps member, I did end up going there under Mm. those, uh, under the auspices of AmeriCorps, which is complicated. That's so interesting that it kind of like you just had to do it that there wasn't right. another option, right. another way for you. Exactly. And, but it did kind of open me up and expose me to the history of the, of um, like war and poverty programs in Appalachia and the ways that those provide some needed resources. And also what does it do to a community to be like, wow, these people keep showing up like here to serve right. your, your poverty, you know? Yeah. Well, that's one of my big questions for you about, I guess I sh- we should talk about what the book is and then I'll ask you some mm-hmm. of my questions about the book. Sure. So I'll pretend to try to do it. Okay. Let's see it. how I do. Uh, I can't wait. Okay. So <clears throat> the third rainbow girl is the story of a double murder in West Virginia, kind of like in the rural part 
around a festival that I'm assuming is kind of like, I don't know, Burning Man or something Mm -hmm. at the time in the 1980. And two women are killed and they're left on the side of the road kind of right before the festival starts. Mm -hmm. And everyone in this town in Pocahontas County are like, what is this murder? Is it connected to the people who are local? Was it some of these festival goers? Like what's going on? So you're kind of examining that murder and then the what comes out of it is that people think it's the locals and there's like this whole he did it, he did it, he did it. Mm-hmm. And then that's combined with your experience in West Virginia, kind of semi-memoir-ish. Like there's like a few sections that are memoir-y. Mm-hmm. But then also the third kind of voice or conversation is about West Virginia itself and what West Virginia is and isn't and who is West Virginia and who isn't and Mm -hmm. what is Appalachian and what isn't. And it's kind of like these three worlds combine. Yes. How'd I do? Oh my God. So great. (laughs) That's actually excellent. I feel like I've been saying it has like three prongs or like three. So like you hit all three. And it's really complex and it's kind of not any genre and it's kind of three genres Mm -hmm. or seven. I don't know. There's like a lot going on, (laughs) but it works, which I feel like, I guess my first question is, how did you get to the three how did you get to the three pieces to work so easily cuz you've kind of subverted mm. memoir just like general nonfiction and then this true crime idea yeah. cuz i'm i don't think it's really true crime it's tough neither do a lot of the ladies on goodreads they're very mad about it they're like i wanted a book about murder and okay. this has like feelings and stuff don't yes. get me started about the ladies <laughs> on goodreads <laughs> goodbye ladies <laughs> It's tough. I don't mean to be dismissive because there is a true crime is a genre that has like certain expectations. And I understand like, um, and we did talk a lot in my publishing house of like how to explain to folks like what this book was. And in some ways, true crime is an expansive and like ever growing umbrella. Right. It like, I feel like there's two kinds of true crime. There's true crime. That's kind of like your book fits in it and lots of things fit in it. And then there's the other kind of true crime that is very specifically like Anne rule, you know, or very specifically, yes, you know, cold case or like those really feels like true crime is true crime Mm -hmm. versus like, this is about a real life crime Mm -hmm. and then some. Totally. Yes. I think essentially I never, I don't think probably any author does like set out to write a book of a particular, like with the words that are put on your book after are often, you don't have control over them. They're not necessarily words you have chosen. And that is what it is like under capitalism. (laughs) Right. But I think that, um, I always wanted to write – I think the the place they're at, like what is um, Pocahontas County, why is it so interesting? It's a very rich and contradictory area that has a long history of, um, you know, uh, integrist traditions like in the region, but then also people coming from all over as back to the landers, as people that admire the, um, the way of being with, with the land in the region, people that want to play music or learn about music. Like people have come in and out of the area right. for a long time, including this rainbow gathering that happens in 1980. So that was always like there. I was always interested in um, finding a way into learning more about the county and just that sort of documentary impulse I think is in me quite strongly of just right. like – this is here. It's interesting. I want people to know about it. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I learned about these murders when I was living in the county. And I think as so often happens, like you don't know what's going to become important for a while. Like you have to sort of metabolize it right. for a couple of years. And so I, I had left the area. I was getting my MFA in fiction actually, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And, um, that year it was like 2014, um, I've been sort of like joking at different events that if you watch Buffy, like when the hell mouth opens, okay. Buffy, <laughs> it's kind of what felt like it was happening in that era um, in 2014, 2015, Charlottesville, because the UVA rape on campus article had just come sure. out. It was like the whole s- town felt extremely tumultuous. There was also um, this like big racist backlash that happened to a Black Lives Matter protest on campus and a... Um, Essentially, like uh, two young two young women were uh, missing and then later found murdered in the area. Um, one uh, like white cis UVA student and then another black trans girl. Uh, actually, she's never been found, but she's considered dead at this point. And there was just this sense of like 
misogyny, racism, right. like all the like proto Trumpy people that would end up rallying in 2017. Like that was already being felt right. in those years. And I just felt like I could not go into my room and close the door and write short fiction anymore. Like that hmm. just wasn't going to work for me. And I, at the same point had had a lot of these sort of feelings of being, um, haunted, confused, obsessed with this time I'd spent in the area of just like, yeah, what does it mean to come in and quote unquote serve? Um, I had relationships with guys and men who were, um, struggling to survive and thrive in the region at the same point that my job was supposedly to be empowering young women. Right. So there's that contradiction there of just like, masculinity is a poison for all. Right. right. <laughs> um, and uh, I just started to feel like I want to write about this. Um, I'm not, this isn't my experience in the sense that I'm not from there, uh, but I did live there. So it was always this kind of like insider, outsider, neither nor feeling. Mm. And it just felt like a complicated nonfiction approach could make more transparent, like who I was, what my positionality is, what I'm bringing to the story right. in a way that fiction really couldn't. Um, and I felt like memoir was too about me when my story was sort of more peripheral and then a straight reported like this is what happened in the crimes felt too like God coming in and imposing. Right. So you just made order. up your own. Yeah, kind of. You just made up Emma's genre. Exactly. It's an, it's an Emmy and not uh, Emmy yes. and nonfiction. Exactly. Too many threads. Do you feel like, cause you mentioned you were right, you're getting your MFA in fiction. And so this yeah. all happens and you're kind of like, mm, I need to make a change yeah. in what the work that I'm doing because it doesn't feel prescient or it doesn't feel important air quotes maybe mm -hmm. um do you feel like what do you feel the role of fiction is in those kind of situations right because some people will go the opposite and they'll say i had to write my novel because mm -hmm. x y and z happened mm -hmm. and as someone who has a master's in fiction you yes. must have opinions about what fiction is and how it serves kind of the zeitgeist or the culture yeah. No, I love that. Um, definitely do have opinions. I feel <laughs> like, um, right. That's absolutely not to say that fiction can't respond right. to of course. Of urgent, course. interesting, um, events that are real. I think I did have this like crisis at that time when, which I think is somewhat reflected in the book of like fiction asks for a certain kind of like coherence and narrative and story making that mm -hmm. felt difficult, especially for the subject matter of this book because so much is, of the book is about how stories can be oversimplified, harmful, can lose the nuance, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like uh, the, re the thing that really like propelled me into writing this book probably was reading the coverage of these murders um, that were written in 1993, like when this one guy was originally brought to trial. And it was just like, wow, this story of I don't know, like sexy hitchhiking ladies get murdered by like backwoods hick monster mm -hmm. Appalachian dudes. Like the moment I read that, I was like, this story is wrong. And there mm. was something in me that wanted to like, if not offer a corrective, like offer something that was more complicated. So it was right. the impulse for this book was always like, take apart story, take it apart, right. take it apart. And I think that's not always a super conducive approach for fiction. Sure. But I do think that I love fiction. It's like my first language. It's I'm my current project is fiction spoilers. Mm. Um, next thing. So I do think that, um, of course there are ways to do it well, but as we have seen <laughs> in recent days, like a la American dirt and stuff there, I think there's certain ways that, um, representing an experience as fiction in the mind and body of a character that doesn't match up with your own identities right. is really fraught. And I think for me, it just felt more ethical and more natural to be alongside. Um, right. Because yeah. you're also not hiding who you are in right. your book. Like you're very much present and it feels like you're there with us, mm. even when you weren't alive. I don't yes. think you were alive in Thank 1980. You. No, I okay. wasn't. Yes. <laughs> uh, but even when you weren't there, I felt like you were there. Mm. And I liked that because I understood your point of view and where you were coming from mm -hmm. to the work, to the story. And I think that that is really important when you're telling a story as an outs outsider, because you're mm -hmm. kind of outside inside. Yeah. Your book is so complicated. Every time I try to say something, I'm like, that's not exactly right. Like, Which is the problem, right? Yeah. That's why it took me seven years. To is that how long it took? <laughs> yeah, I've been joking. I was on the seven year plan because oh, I, I did a long roundabout thing, which I do not recommend okay. to anybody, which is <laughs> I wrote a significant volume of pages before we sold the book on proposal. So yes, I 
because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't right. know what I was writing. I was switching genres. I, you know, uh, first I thought I was doing two separate projects. You know, you never know. Right. Um, but yeah, about about seven years till from when it started to when it came out. Oh my but, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I have to give a small shout out. So you um, mentioned one of my favorite writers in your book, oh. Lacey M. Johnson. Oh, I love her. Yes, I know. <sighs> She's a dream. Ah. But you talked about her like debtor, criminal yes. debt, the whole thing. And I was like, note, taking a note on this. Ugh, I just love yes, her. Me too. Um, that's all. Everybody who's listening knows that I'm like kind of obsessed with her. So The this, Reckonings was, yes. Did you read The Other Side also? I have not read The Other okay. Side. Which, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, it's her book about her experience when she was raped by her, kidnapped and raped by her partner, right. I guess ex-partner at the right. time. Um, and, and then The Reckonings kind of came out of that book tour. Right. And I will say this. For people who are nervous about reading a book about rape, because it can yeah. be a lot, especially if it's, you know, it can be a lot. It is less a lot than you might think, given okay. the circumstances of the of yeah. the act. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's like no big deal because mm-hmm. it's a very violent rape, but she is such an amazing writer. She's able mm-hmm. to kind of turn it into something a little bit more digestible mm-hmm. without taking like the glaring like searing indictment of this person. So I can't, I can't exactly do it justice, but I was very nervous when I picked it up and then I read it and I was like, I actually could digest this book. And it's good to hear. Yeah. So I think I'm, um, because there's been such a huge explosion of like, uh, media about, um, sexual violence in whatever form I'm like, I've sort of like housed these right. things and then I've had to recover for like several weeks. Right. And so I'm always like, ooh, is today the day I'm going to read yeah. the other side? But I did just read also um, Jeannie Vanasco's book, Things We Didn't Talk About When oh. I Was a Girl. Okay. And that I also was like, oh no, is this going to like destroy me? But right. instead it, it was just so complicated and so much more about how you make sense of these events. That's exactly what the other side is. It's, mm-hmm. it's more kind of in line with like the the – recovery and the response and the what is mm. who am I now yeah or like what does this mean now yeah um so yeah just that's, my sidebar to give Lacey no, Thompson great. a shout out because I'm obsessed with her I know I yes I try I like have like tried to like stalk her on the internet in a kind oh, I way successfully yes. stalk her. I, I forced her to come on this podcast <laughs> oh, I was like I'm obsessed with oh, you oh I've never okay I have to, you have to go back to it's one episode, of the like mini yeah. episodes and it's great um Love it. Stalker. Okay. <laughs> okay. Before we kind of move on to like your reading life and stuff, mm-hmm. um, I just want to make sure I ask you everything that I wanted to ask you about your book. For sure. Oh, I know. Are you normally a true crime person? Mm-hmm. Like is true crime something that you ever thought that you might write about? Or is this mm-hmm. so specifically to this crime, your place in life, your experience in West Virginia? Right. Um, I feel like, of course, classically, I'm going to give a both and answer, which is um, yes and no. No, in the sense that I never, yeah, I do not read a ton of, I suppose, like what publishing would call Mm -hmm. true crime. Um, I think that, yes, I, and again, like I never set out to write a book about these murders. Like it always just seemed like the most um, like innovative and important lens through which to talk about some other things that Mm -hmm. were really obsessing me like gender and class and place um, and misogyny classic. But I think that this case did kind of just like work its way into my heart. And I did go to a talk uh, with Maggie Nelson, another goddess. And she said, you know, someone asked her like, why did you have to write two books about murder before you wrote books about like queerness and motherhood Mm -hmm. and, um, all of these things. And she was like, well, they were just the biggest boulders I had to roll out of the way before I could write about other things. Interesting. And I did kind of feel similarly about the subject matter of just like, not that it's not an essential thing that I wanted to work on, but also it just wouldn't let me go. And I couldn't write anything else. It seemed like until I had written this book. Right. Um, however, to be fair, again, my sister and I watched, <laughs> all of the lawn order there ever is to watch. Like our family literally will get together for Christmas and we're like, what can we watch that we can all agree on? And it's like, ah, oh, yes. Like law and order season one, episode one, like that's right. like what we watch. So like, to be fair, certainly crime and criminal justice and the law, um, 
we're certainly like in the groundwater of our family. My dad's a lawyer. I'm really interested in um, these questions clearly. And I do think that I do consume um, like complicated true crime, if you will. Like I did really love the When They See Us miniseries. Mm, um, that, so good. So good. So difficult. But I actually loved um, that one so much because it was like the first episode was a lot of the information that we already know about right. the Central Park Five case. But then the next three were really complicated and beautiful portraits of like what it feels like to be incarcerated, what it um, is to be so young when right. these experiences happen to you and how it changes your sense of like who you are in the world. And right. so I do, if, if true crime is expanding to include work like that or work like Savage Appetites, which right. we're going to chat about like that, I feel like honored and excited to be like grouped with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it. So both and yes, both, no. Tell us both and. I feel like this became like sort of the um it's like your mantra. Mantra of the book. Yes, I had these little pins um made that for like the book that just say that because I think if anything this book taught me that there's um it's like more complicated than like there's two sides to every story. It's more like for every true thing there's a um equally true and contradictory thing mm. and it feels like that just kept coming back for me over and over again through the process of writing this like I probably did enter the book feeling the most empathy and identification with um, Vicky and Nancy, who are these two women who are killed, and also with their friend, Liz Jondro, who's the original sort of third rainbow girl of the title. We didn't even talk about that. No, it's completely fine. (laughs) No, in the sense that she um, travels with her friends across country to go to this event and then splits off from them at the last moment. And what she told me very early on was like, I wasn't hurt by these events um, in the sense of physical harm, but I was traumatized. Of course. Yeah. And that became sort of like the major thread of the book of like all of the trauma that happens around um, right. an act. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, this book is a lot about trauma in is. a lot of different ways, like the trauma of being poor, of yeah. being, you know, forgotten perhaps. of, And then obviously the trauma of being murdered Mm -hmm. or being connected to a murder, whether it's the women's families or Liz or whoever. Mm -hmm. But that is kind of like maybe the most clear through line of the whole book, I would say. It's like our relation, human relationship to trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that. I feel like that's like the hope. And also I think um, I learned more and more about the men who are accused of these crimes. There was so much trauma that was inflicted on them, on their families, their, like their, um, children, like intergenerational trauma coming from being essentially wrongly accused of a crime or being incarcerated. Like most of those guys, like about seven men were accused or confessed or were implicated in some way. And they served time between like two months and two years, basically on the basis of a single statement and then stayed in jail because of the cash bail system, right. like issues we're seeing playing out now. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, right. So like whether or not we believe whoever may have did, have done it, like there's so much, um, there's so many accusations and so many years that people spend, you know, either under the right. shadow of this or physically incarcerated. So I, I identified with them as well. I keep saying I'm asking my last question about the book, but I have oh, so many. This yeah. is my last one for real. And then you have to tell me to stop. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You kind of come in, my understanding of how you came into this book based upon what you said and after reading it kind of felt like you came into it thinking like, I'm going to learn about these murders and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going to maybe identify with these women and kind of feel like I'm going to redeem them in a way and like kind of say like these men who maybe did it, like misogyny Mm -hmm. is bad and (laughs) like kind of like, it kind of felt like that was maybe the where you thought you were going to enter. And Mm -hmm. this isn't a spoiler, but definitely feels like through the book, you come to understand like masculinity in a different way. Mm-hmm. Was that hard for you to kind of open up your thinking mm-hmm. in your research project process and to not be like, no, this is a book about misogyny? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was hard because yes, I feel like um, if it's not already clear, I like most of my college life was like feminism, rah, rah, right. rah, like, which obviously is a huge part of my orientation in the world. But um, I think a more complicated understanding of like gender and trauma has to include like masculinity trauma has to include like the way that masculinity and class intersect and influence each other. Um, yeah. And I think I did think this was going to be a book that was like, look at these interesting like women who traveled by themselves and you have, should have the right to do that. And even if it does result in violence, that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to move and change and all these things. Right. However, then yes, I think again, it's that both end of like, 
the stuff like the true thing was that these women died um and also like their the investigation into their deaths inflicted so much trauma onto the community mm. and violence in its own way and like neither of those things cancel each other out and neither is more important and both right. are true and i did yeah like every time i thought um I kind of knew what this book was about. I would talk to someone new and they were like, ha, 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 no, like, right. you're, you know, wrong. And, um, it was a very humbling process of being told over and over again, like you're not getting it right. And, mm. um, having to continue to like open my brain to new possibilities. I think that's why reporting can be so cool for a writer. Um, is just that there are things out there that you don't know, you don't know, and you can make new knowledge by talking to people who have experiences that you don't have. Totally. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay. Yeah. We're going to move forward. So we did this little segment. It's called Asking the Stacks mm -hmm. where someone's written in. They want a book recommendation. Oh, cool. I have not prepped you. That's fine. I don't prep people for this part. It's <laughs> off the cuff. We'll see how you do. Okay. Um, so this comes from Joaquin and they say, I'm traveling through Europe for a month and I can only afford to take one book with me and I don't like to read on a Kindle. I want a hard copy of a book. What's a book that will last me through my trip? Ooh. I'll go first. Okay. So you have a little time to think. Great. Um, Joaquin, I kind of did the obvious thing, which would be like any of the Russians. Like, mm. you know, you could do War and Peace or the Brothers Cards Mod, Mod, I can never say it. Mm -hmm. um, but the other one that I thought might be kind of fun, which I actually read when I was in Europe, which has nothing to do with Europe, is A Brief, Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. Uh, it's a big ass book. It's a tome. Yeah. And it's written in a lot of dialects, so it kind of slows you down. You can't like power through it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's really good. And it's about kind of a fictionalized version of perhaps Mar uh, Bob Marley's assassination attempt. Mm -hmm. And it's really good. Um, and then the other one is kind of a super backlist book, The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Mm -hmm. I've never read it, but it's supposed to be amazing. And it's like over a thousand pages. 
And it's about, I believe, like politics in New York City and kind of like the moving, shifting, kind of backhanding. Mm. I don't know. I've heard really great things about it from authors who came on this show. And I know that it's massive because it's a book that people often (laughs) say, I'm really proud that I read this book. So those would be my suggestions. How about you? I love that you went for length and complexity. That's like totally different than where my brain went. I think I went for... um, I think short story collections and essay collections also allow for a lot of like breathing room between. And also I know when I'm traveling, I like on a train ride to read a single story and then kind of stop and look out the window for a while. And then, right. How writery of you. you. That's so writery. It's just like, then you have to like breathe and digest it. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. So I think I would say, um, I'm like a French file, French file, if you will. Um, also because I grew up in New York, I never got to like move to New York with my right. dramatic montage. I got to move to New yeah, York. Yeah. That sounds so fun. So I did get to <laughs> move to Paris for like t- like two months, like not long enough. But, okay. um, and I read uh, the collected stories of Mavis Gallant, which a lot okay. of them take place in Paris and are sort of um, like juicy and chewy and a lot about like walking and being and um, just sort of exploring in a way that also reflects back, uh, at least for you know Paris and France. And then I would also say um, Lauren Elkin's book uh, Flaneuse. Okay, I don't know, which that. is about. Um, I read it in the in like thinking about my book in the sense of it's about women traveling alone. So the flaneur is like this figure in French culture of someone who just walks without a purpose, like just oh. a walker and a looker and a witness to the world essentially. And um, Lauren Elkin wrote this book Flaneuse, which is sort of looking at that trope or figure through a female lens. And it's a lot of short essays about traveling and walking. Um, So I feel like it could be a really good travel book too. Okay. Well, those are your recommendations. If you read them, let us know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now to the Stacks questionnaire. Um, We always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Okay. I was prepared for this. (laughs) Um, I want to say the Hard as a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers is okay. a book I love and a book that I feel like is not read enough. It's like a sort of Southern Gothic, sad, but fiery, interesting, political, juicy, queer novel um, written by Carson McCullers, who is like a delightful, strange, sickly queer who died long ago. Okay. Um, and uh, I also, well, this might be getting into later questions, but when I just read that I absolutely loved is um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong, okay. which comes out this month, I believe, um, from One World. And it's and if you're listening to this now, it came out in February because this episode you. is happening yes. in the future. In the future, yes. I think it's the <laughs> end of February 2020. And it is the subtitle is An Asian American Reckoning. Uh, it's Oh, and it's mm-hmm. that great cover with mm-hmm. like, like flames. flames. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So good. And she is a poet by training. I believe she wrote this other book called Dance Dance Revolution that I've heard good things about. But um, Minor Feelings is essentially a look at Asian American uh, experience through the lens of like creativity. So as I understood it, she's like talking about the ways that um, white creatives get allowed this wide latitude for thinking about their artistic process and Mm -hmm. who they are and their creativity and Asian folks do not. And it's these essays about like um, some of them are more sort of uh, almost like an opinion or a polemic. And then some of them are personal about being like an Asian weirdo at Oberlin with her like mm. two besties who are both um, East Asian artists and the ways they influenced each other and hurt each other. And it's just, it's super complicated in a way that obviously I am always interested in right. weird nonfiction books. And it's also just the prose on the line level is really um, just like unexpected and sharp. So, and then hate is ready for this. I read the stay sexy and don't get murdered the um yeah the my favorite murder ladies and i really hated it can you tell me what that book is about because i used to listen to their podcast and i really liked it i did the thing where i went back to the beginning and started listening through and then probably around fall 2016's episodes i mean early 2017 i just quit yeah and i'm curious what they did with their book Yes. I don't begrudge – like they're two interesting comedians. Like they right. come from a comedy background right, right, and right, right. I think that matters and like awesome, like good good for them. And like so much of the writing is um, like funny on the line level and has good rhythm and all that stuff. But uh, I hated it because I just felt that similar to their podcast, it is – it plays very fast and loose with facts. And mm. it, this speaks to my like, like 
even though my book does try to talk about like what is truth and deconstructing like what a true thing is, like I also was extremely rigorous in the checking of facts, like hired an independent fact checker, like that matters to me, especially when it involves real people, right. real people who have suffered trauma, their families, right. um, family members, people who are alive, like yikes. And I just felt that um, in terms of like also that question of like, how do you put in a personal narrative alongside a story of violence that happened to somebody else? Like their personal narratives often like subsume the air in the mm. room and take away from the um, stories they're trying to tell. Got it. And there's just this like, idea um which we'll talk about more maybe of like that white women are in danger all the time Mm -hmm. like the stay sexy and don't get murdered as if it's like at any moment you could be murdered and you're like well no actually like the people that get murdered in this country like in vast quantities are are not you not you and they're usually like men of color and this idea of like uh we must be on constant vigilance in this way that also gets paired with like wine and funniness. I'm just like, I'm not here for it. Right. Did you ever listen to the podcast? I feel bad because I listened to it with my friend, Sarah Marshall, who does, um, another wonderful podcast called you're wrong about, but we were both, we both like traffic in this land of like complicated dead girls. So we were both like, we should listen to this. And we were on a road trip to like Halifax, Nova Scotia, and put on the podcast. And within like five minutes, we were both like, no, turn it off. Yeah. And like, sort of like yelling at the radio. And it was just like, I couldn't give it more than three minutes. It just, yeah. it felt so disrespectful. Right. And especially like someone who does work in that same world and you approach it so differently. It's like, I, I want to like it. Right. But like, it just feels like it's living in a different cosmology. Yeah. Totally. I get it. Mm. Okay. What are you reading right now? Okay. Um, literally right now, I am reading, uh, Lakewood by Megan Giddings. Is it amazing? It's amazing. Okay. I'm dying yes. to read it. Yes. <laughs> she is a like wonderful human that I've come across in the real world. And then when her book was coming out, I was like, oh my God, I need it. And it's – I won't like spoil it, if you will. Please but don't. Yes. It's, it's certainly from the um, mind of like this very – like smart, interesting um, black woman is the main character. And it just has all of the ingredients of like a red clocks, which I also loved. And also thinking about um, just like dystopia in the natural world, similar like severance in some ways, the okay. Ma book, which I also loved. So it's, yeah, I can't wait for others to read it okay. because it's blowing my mind. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the books that you're most looking forward to reading? They don't have to be new books, but just things that you're on your shelf that you're looking yes. towards. I have many piles of books in my house and it's like, this just arrived. Read this. And it's like, no, read this now. And then it's like on my bedside table. It's like, really, I'm reading this. Um, <laughs> and so the ones that are on, on like, really, I'm reading this and I'm going to get to them like next month or something. Um, I'm really excited about Lost Children Archive, okay. which I have not read, but has been um, obviously was super well received yeah. and well-reviewed. And um, I always was interested in it because it's a road trip novel, which I love. And then also has been getting additional press like these days around like the own voices, um, Latinx Mm -hmm. literary uh, dignity movement. And I just feel like her response in this moment has been really smart and interesting. And I did like look at the first page and I'm definitely like one of those people because it's like there's one million books and they're arriving at my house all the time. And I'm going out and buying them all the time because I have an addiction. Right. And it's like the first page really does matter. And I looked at the first page and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm for ready this. for this. Yeah. And then also, oh, yes, uh, Barn 51 by Deb Owen Unferth. I don't know that. She, yes. She is a kind of like strange white lady of a generation above me who is very funny and very sharp. Her, a lot of her um, – Novels are kind of like mm, – are sort of like experimental um, humor weirdness. Okay. And I loved her previous book. And this it's this is called Barn 51. It's literally from the perspective of a chicken, I believe. Okay. Great. <laughs> Sounds totally weird. So I'm just looking forward to like taking a break from my own brain and spending time in the brain of someone who's like very bizarre in a wonderful way. Okay. Yes. Got it. Mm-hmm. How do you pick – your next book. You're getting a lot of books sent to you. You go out and buy books. How yes. do you actually pick what to pick up? It's really hard. I would be curious to hear your answer too, but I think that it really is that question of like, does it, um, 
speak to me from page one, unfortunately, I suppose. And then I also do put a lot of stock in like a few friends who I think are really smart. I have this one friend, Annie, who is also an amazing writer in her own right. Annie Leontes wrote this novel. Let me explain you about her or about a Greek family that is, um, extremely funny and sad and interesting, but she reads everything. Um, she's like a machine and she just, she like basically tells me like, um, what her top, ones of the month are. And I really respect that. I am a slow reader. I always have been. Um, me too. Yeah. So I have to like, it's an investment for me. Right. Um, and I think I also will read like, mm, more so books that came out like one to two years ago, less than books that are out right now, unless it's a friend like Megan Giddings or something that just arrives. And I'm like, I'm obsessed with this. Right. 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 Do you read multiple books at a time? I do. Okay. I probably I always have like one audiobook okay. going because I love driving okay. and um especially for right now on like book tour land. Uh I am listening to um Long Bright River, the Lismore. Okay. And I also um I have a like food book addiction. Okay. I was listening to um Ruth Reichel's Save Me the Plums, which is a really fun audiobook. Okay. Uh and then I always have a book like in my bag that I am reading like on the trolley. Um, Got it. Philadelphia still has trolleys. Okay. God love them. And then um, I'll have a book like when I wake up in the morning for something that's like, I know I should read this for craft purposes okay. or for my own writing. But um, sometimes if I get obsessed with the book, all others go by the wayside and I just will read Take that. it with you everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the last really good book that someone recommended to you? Mm. My Autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chapland, which just came out um, also in February 2020. Okay. And um, that was – there's a few, like, people who work in literary publicity that I think are just super smart and I just trust. When they send me something, I'm like, mm. God damn it, I do want to read this, you yeah. know? And so this book is a Tin House book and okay. came out, um, again, recently, but – they sent me a galley and I was like, of course, as I said earlier, I'm obsessed with Carson McCullers. Um, this book is about sort of excavating Carson McCullers' queerness and the ways that um, as a writer, she is sort of seen through this like Southern Gothic lens, but she also really should be part of like the queer canon. Mm. And that book also just the personalness of it, it's interwoven with Jen Chaplin's um, own sort of discovery of her queerness and also her commitment to being an archivist and working with Carson McCullers personal items, uh, in the archives, like speaks to all of my, like, um, like frumpy gay woman, Southern <laughs> lacy doily feelings. Right. And it's just really smart. And, um, I don't know that I would have discovered it had it not like shown up, shown up on your in doorstep. my house. Yeah. And what's a book that you love to recommend to other people? Mm. Probably in the Dream House, Carmen Machado's memoir, which okay. um, she's also another Philadelphia writer. Oh, is she? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, Philadelphia, hang out with uh, our friends Kelly Reed and Liz Moore. Yes. Carmen's wonderful, obviously, but I think her memoir is really special and similar to what you said about um, The Other Side, the Lacey M. Johnson book. Mm. Carmen's memoir is difficult, but it's not um, damaging. Like it didn't yeah. do me That's such a good distinction. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's, um, also just has a lot of like in a book that's about, um, queer domestic abuse. It's has a lot of fun with language, which makes it a little bit, um, like easier to digest. And I gave it to a few friends just being like, we've had complicated queer voyages with emotionally, withholding or abusive exes. And I'm like, just read Carmen's book and let me know if your life has changed. (laughs) Okay. This is kind of like our fire round. I'm going to just, you're going to shout out the title. Great. Last book that made you laugh. Probably, uh, Alice Bowen's book, Dead Girls. Okay. It's really funny. Okay. Last book that make you, that made you cry. Kathy Park Hong, Minor Feelings again. (laughs) Okay. Last book that made you angry. Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Hated it, but also hated it in a like, literally angry way just felt it was so literary world insider in a way that just like drives me bonkers okay last book that brought you joy ling ma severance okay Mm -hmm. and then the last book you read that you felt like you learned a lot 
I read the Toni Morrison essay collection. It's the Source of Self-Regard. Source of Self-Regard. Thank you. I was like, it's a giant pink book. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, that one. Source of Self-Regard. Okay. Are there any books that you've read that you feel really proud about having read? I did this whole James Baldwin kick whilst okay. in Paris because I was feeling very proud of oh, okay. myself. Very Parisian. So I, thank you. So I read James Baldwin Works in Order um, because it seemed important to do so. Wow. And so his two essay collections, um, Notes from a Native Son and Nobody Knows My Name, written sort of on two continents, like mm-hmm. He Escapes to Paris is like, oh, God, thank God I don't live in America. Here's everything about America. Gets back to America and is like, oh, God, like racism is everywhere mm-hmm. and it's inescapable. Those writing combination felt – I definitely learned a lot from that as well. But also I just – there's such a, it's, is like a, a fire is a cliche term, but it's like, there is a, um, it's just like a burning. He really burns, um, everything down and it just yeah. made me feel like what a witness, what a thing to witness. That's so cool. Yeah. I've not read either of those yet. They're on my list. Still so relevant. They're on my list. Mm-hmm. What about a book that you feel embarrassed that you still have not read? Mm, Moby Dick. Oh, yeah. Every summer my dad's like, you should read Moby Dick. And I'm like, every summer I'm like, but there's so many other books, not by white men or about whales that I could read. Um, <laughs> or about whales. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that I do need to read it. It was like in college, we had two choices for um, the track of like the required English major class. And it was the one that focused on Moby Dick or the one that focused on Middlemarch. And I took the Middlemarch path. But Got it. I probably need to read the whales. Do you think you do? Why do you feel like you need to read it? I don't know. I guess there's just like the, I am interested in sort of quest narratives and and obsession narratives. And like I read, um, what's his face, the art of fielding, the Chad Harbaugh book. And that was such a like sort of retelling. And everyone says like, it's a foundational text. Plus my dad keeps telling me to read it. it. So you need to please your dad. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Let's see. Oh, what book is your problematic favorite? Oh, like mine is Gone with the Wind. Wow. I fucking love Gone oh with the God. Wind. Oh my God. I know what it is. <laughs> Sophie's Choice by William okay. Styron. It is problematic in the sense that like William Styron is totally one of those like boomer-ish like or like pre-boomer white guys who like it's like super misogynist probably and super mm-hmm. infused with sex. But like I fucking love that book. It's um people think like in popular vernacular like a Sophie's Choice is like uh, about the Holocaust um, and a horrible decision, but like actually, it's really a book about the South and the, this like Southern guy who comes to New York and like Jewishness and being a descendant of slave owners and reckoning with that, and then encountering someone who has a lot of trauma from, in a different way, aka um, the uh, survivor of the Holocaust. And there's a lot of like sex. It's like mostly about like sex and dating for like, mm-hmm. the first half, and also being a writer. There's like a whole 200 pages that's just. Um, the main character reading books that he rejects from the terrible publishing job he has. So it's just like super enjoyable. I try to read it every summer because it's like a beat. It's a beach read. It really wow. is. People are like, Sophie's Choice is not a beach read. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that, yeah. but I really like it. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite books from childhood? The Giver. <gasps> Me too. Right? Oh I feel God. like The Giver just... and Charlotte's Web are my I top know. two. Oh my God, Charles Webb is so good too. I just feel like The Giver is so complicated. It is. about memory and collective memory and loss and trauma. And I'm just like, how did I read this at like age nine? But it was a very, very influential book for me. Like I just remember being like, I am Jonah. I will like (laughs) go on the sled down the memory sled. You know, and it really did feel like this idea of like um, wanting to participate in like the collective unconscious or something but it's for kids which is it's so crazy so you don't know this but people who are Mm -hmm. listening to this conversation will know that last week we did the giver with (gasps) my mom no way for the podcast that's so sweet but in real life i have not recorded that episode yet okay so (laughs) you guys listening will be like why isn't she talking about the giver we just talked about it for a whole episode but it's because i haven't done it yet oh we're all out of order what did your mom say she has. We haven't done it. Oh, we're so we're rereading it. Okay. it to talk about it together. She's yeah. going to be a guest, but you guys will have already heard everything she said, and who knows? It probably will be really fucking weird. But well, that's the thing. I feel like it would be worth a reread because yeah. it's like 
I have no idea what it's if how it actually feel to read as an adult. Right, because I remember yeah. reading it as a kid and being like, "This book is amazing," yeah. but I don't remember the book anymore. No, and isn't it like everyone's assigned a job? A job, and, and he's assigned this like horrible thing, which yeah. is like everyone's collective memory trauma. Yeah, what a what a premise. what a crazy story to have children read, but it worked obviously for us. Mm, totally. Um. Okay. Did you wait? Was that assigned to you in school? Yes. Okay. Me I too. Think so. I think I want to say like fourth grade or something. Yeah. Yeah, fourth grade sounds right. Fifth, maybe. If you were going to assign a book in school, maybe let's say high school, so it's not just kids' books, but you could do younger, mm. what's a book that you think you might assign? I mean, again, because The uh, Heart is a Lonely Hunter was assigned to me when I was 16 uh, in like 11th grade, I think, was the book that like rewired my brain and like made me want to be a writer and it has it's like um this book has everything i feel like it's like (laughs) it's like american politics legacy of slavery um queerness gender dysphoria um race and and like that has like this amazing it's literally like a 20 page speech that's Mm. written verbatim into the book about the state of blackness in america written by or spoken in the book by this um very like angry and smart and complicated black character and i feel like you just get to like listen to that speech for 20 pages like it just takes a lot of innovative risks too i just feel like it's like it's something for everybody really whatever sort of feelings you're having in high school (laughs) you got it Mm -hmm. you taught at uva i did i taught at uva and i've also taught in philly at temple and other places and what do you teach just englishy things or writing (laughs) (laughs) englishy things mostly i've taught um creative writing mostly uh fiction and some nonfiction, and then also i've taught like composition like how to write a paper and um i taught in the media studies and production department at temple so like how to write a profile, how to write, okay. uh, um, you know, like basic journalism piece, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's a book? Well, maybe maybe it's this Carson McCullers, but mm. let's see. What's a book that you feel like you saw yourself reflected back? Yeah, definitely that one. I think of just being like a weird, sad child but okay. <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of feelings. But I think um, so many. Okay. I think that something – like the, what what it feels like the most me on the page kind of a feeling sure i don't know also the, a lot of these questions i just ask and let people decide what they answer no, i love her i love it <laughs> also i was gonna say um she's so weird but um marguerite duras is i don't know who that is yeah she's this like well she's dead but i was okay. i always imagined her as like an ancient okay french lady she's like an ancient french lady who drank herself to death and right classic and she wrote um this book the lover and then also um this book, Good Morning. Oh no, I'm sorry. Good Morning Midnight is Jean Reese. I feel like I always get Marguerite Duras and Jean Reese. They're sort of in the same category of like, okay, um, smart, cutting, devastating, like grumpy women who like are super active alcoholics. Okay. And yeah, unfortunately. And um, but I'll focus on on Marguerite Duras. She wrote this book, The Lover, which is um, basically about a complicated relationship between this young, um, like French European girl and this older. Uh, like businessman in it's they call it like Indo French Indo China like of okay. a different time, but essentially it's like a book about aging. It's a book about bitterness. Mm. <laughs> it's a book about addiction, and like that also really feels like. Unfortunately, I reflect back in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Last one. If you could require the current president of the United States mm-hmm. to read one book, what would it be? <sighs> I feel like it would be like Pima Chodron. When things fall apart. Like, I feel like our current president, what he has none of is empathy for other human beings. Right. And I feel like what Pima Chandran has in spades is humbleness, insight, Mm. and empathy for other human beings. And when things fall apart, but really you could choose any Pima Chandran book is about like how to, like, whatever. This is not a podcast about Donald Trump, but essentially I feel like he probably is so deeply hates himself and is so Mm. deeply afraid of his own like human material that reading something that's just about like the inner goodness in all of us and the ways that everyone is scared and afraid would be like very healing for him. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. Look at you trying to heal. Uh-huh. I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before we sign off, let me just remind you all Emma's book, the third rainbow girl it's in the world. Go get it. As we talked about extensively, it is neither here nor there. <laughs> it is all the things. It is both and mm-hmm. in every possible way. Um, and it's wonderful and you should check it out. 
At the end of the month, Emma and I are going to be discussing Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. It is about, it is a conversation about what is true crime and how, how come we're so fucking obsessed with it. Um, and that will be the last Wednesday of the month. So make sure you check that book out of your library or go purchase a copy. There's links to everything we talked about today in the show notes. Um, Emma, thank you for being here. Mm, Such a delight. Yay. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all for listening today. And thank you to Emma Copley Eisenberg for being our guest. Make sure you grab yourself a copy of her book, The Third Rainbow Girl. Emma will be back on June 24th to discuss Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe for the Stacks Book Club. Find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. For more, follow the Stacks on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 